And we're back, a brand new episode from Another World Audiobooks, carrying on with the awesome story, the epic tale of a princess of Mars and John Carter. In today's episode, we get introduced to a new character that is going to be pretty influential in the story, so be on the lookout for that. Thanks guys for listening, remember to spread the word about the podcast and share it with somebody that you love who would enjoy a free audiobook. Now without further ado, I give you Princess of Mars. Chapter 8, A Fair Captive from the Sky the third day after the incubator ceremony, we set forth toward home, but scarcely had the head of the procession come into the open ground before the city than orders were given for an immediate and hasty return. As though trained for years in this particular evolution, the green Martians melted like mist into the spacious doorways of the nearby buildings, until, in less than three minutes, the entire cavalcade of chariots, mastodons, and mounted warriors was nowhere to be seen. Sola and I had entered a building upon the front of the city. In fact, the same one in which I had had my encounter with the apes, and, wishing to see what had caused the sudden retreat, I mounted to an upper floor and peered from the window out over the valley and the hills beyond. And there, I saw the cause of their sudden scurrying to cover. A huge craft, long, low, and grey-painted, swung slowly over the crest of the nearest hill. Following it came another, and another, and another, until twenty of them, swinging low above the ground, sailed slowly and majestically towards us. Each carried a banner swung from stem to stern upon the upper works, and upon the prow of each was painted some odd device that gleamed in the sunlight and showed plainly even at the distance at which we were from the vessels. I could see figures crowding the forward decks and upper works of the aircraft. Whether they had discovered us or simply were looking at the deserted city, I could not say, but in any event they received a rude reception, for suddenly and without warning the green Martians fired a terrific volley from the windows of the buildings facing the little valley across which the great ships were so peacefully advancing. Instantly, the scene changed as by magic. The foremost vessel swung broadside toward us, and bringing her guns into play, returned our fire, at the same time moving parallel to our front for a short distance, and then turning back with the evident intention of completing a great circle which would bring her up to a position once more opposite our firing line. The other vessels followed in her wake, each one opening upon us as she swung into position. Our own fire never diminished, and I doubt if 25% of our shots went wild. It had never been given me to see such deadly accuracy of aim, and it seemed as though a little figure on one of the craft dropped to the explosion of each bullet, while the banners and upper works dissolved into spurts of flame as the irresistible projectiles of our warriors mowed through them. The fire from the vessels was most ineffectual, owing, as I afterward learned, to the unexpected suddenness of the first volley, which caught the ship's crew entirely unprepared, and the sighting apparatus of the guns unprotected from the deadly aim of our warriors. It seemed that each green warrior had certain objective points for his fire under relatively identical circumstances of warfare. For example, a proportion of them, always the best marksmen, direct their fire entirely upon the wireless finding and sighting apparatus of the big guns of an attacking naval force. Another detail attends to the smaller guns in the same way. Others pick off the gunners, still others the officers, while certain other quotas concentrate their attention upon the other members of the crew, upon the upper works, and upon the steering gear and propellers. Twenty minutes after the first volley, the great fleet swung trailing off in the direction from which it had first appeared. Several of the craft were limping perceptibly, and seemed but barely under the control of their depleted crews. Their fire had ceased entirely, and all their energies seemed focused upon escape. Our warriors then rushed up to the roofs of the buildings which we occupied, and followed the retreating armada with a continuous fusillade of deadly fire. One by one, however, the ships managed to dip below the crests of the outlying hills, until only one barely moving craft was in sight. This had received the brunt of our fire, and seemed to be entirely unmanned, as not a moving figure was visible upon her decks. Slowly, she swung from her course, circling back toward us in an erratic and pitiful manner. 
Instantly, the warriors ceased firing, for it was quite apparent that the vessel was entirely helpless, and far from being in position to inflict harm upon us, she could not even control herself sufficiently to escape. As she neared the city, the warriors rushed out upon the plain to meet her, but it was evident that she still was too high for them to hope to reach her decks. From my vantage point in the window, I could see the bodies of her crew strewn about, although I could not make out what manner of creatures they might be. Not a sign of life was manifest upon her as she drifted slowly with a slight breeze in a southeasterly direction. She was drifting some fifty feet above the ground, followed by all but some hundred of the warriors who had been ordered back to the roofs to cover the possibility of a return of the fleet or of reinforcements. It soon became evident that she would strike the face of the building about a mile south of our position, and as I watched the progress of the chase, I saw a number of warriors gallop ahead, dismount, and enter the building she seemed destined to touch. As the craft neared the building, and just before she struck, the Martian warriors swarmed upon her from the windows, and with their great spears eased the shock of the collision, and in a few moments they had thrown out grappling hooks, and the big boat was being hauled to ground by their fellows below. After making her fast, they swarmed the sides and searched the vessel from stem to stern. I could see them examining the dead sailors, evidently for signs of life, and presently a party of them appeared from below, dragging a little figure among them. The creature was considerably less than half as tall as the green Martian warriors, and from the balcony I could see that it walked erect upon two legs, and surmised that it was some new and strange Martian monstrosity with which I had not yet become acquainted. They removed their prisoner to the ground, and then commenced a systematic rifling of the vessel. Their operation required several hours, during which a number of the chariots were relinquished to transport the loot, which consisted in arms, ammunition, silks, furs, jewels, strangely carved stone vessels, and a quantity of solid foods and liquids, including many casks of water, the first I had seen since my advent upon Mars. After the last load had been removed, the warriors made lines fast to the craft and towed her far out into the valley in a southwesterly direction. A few of them boarded her and were busily engaged in what appeared, from my distant position, as the emptying of the contents of various carboys upon the dead bodies of the sailors and over the decks and works of the vessel. This operation concluded, they hastily clambered over her sides, sliding down the guy ropes to the ground. The last warrior to leave the deck turned and threw something back upon the vessel, waiting an instant to note the outcome of his act. As a faint spurt of flame rose from the point where the missile struck, he swung over the side and was quickly upon the ground. Scarcely had he alighted than the guy ropes were simultaneously released, and the great ship, lightened by the removal of the loot, soared majestically into the air, her decks and upper works a mass of roaring flames. Slowly, she drifted to the southeast, rising higher and higher as the flames ate away her wooden parts and diminished the weight upon her. Ascending to the roof of the building, I watched her for hours, until finally she was lost in the dim vistas of the distance. The sight was awe-inspiring in the extreme, as one contemplated this mighty floating funeral pyre, drifting unguided and unmanned through the lonely wastes of the Martian heavens. A derelict of death and destruction, typifying the life story of these strange and ferocious creatures, into whose unfriendly hands fate had carried me. Much depressed, and to me unaccountably so, I slowly descended to the street. The scene I had witnessed seemed to mark the defeat and annihilation of the forces of a kindred people, rather than the routing of our green warriors of a horde of similar, though unfriendly creatures. I could not fathom the seeming hallucination, nor could I free myself from it, but somewhere, in the innermost recesses of my soul, I felt a strange yearning toward these unknown foemen, and a mighty hope surged through me that the fleet would return and demand a reckoning from the green warriors who had so ruthlessly and wantonly attacked it. Close at my heel, in his now accustomed place, followed Wula, the hound, and as I emerged upon the street, Sola rushed up to me as though I had been the object of some search on her part. The cavalcade was returning to the plaza, the homeward march having been given up for that day, nor, in fact, was it recommenced for more than a week, owing to the fear of a return attack by the aircraft. 
Lokas Tomo was too astute an old warrior to be caught upon the open plains with a caravan of chariots and children, and so we remained at the deserted city until the danger seemed past. As Sola and I entered the plaza, a sight met my eyes which filled my whole being with a great surge of mingled hope, fear, exultation, and depression, and yet most dominant was a subtle sense of relief and happiness, for just as we neared the throng of Martians, I caught a glimpse of the prisoner from the battlecraft, who had been roughly dragged into a nearby building by a couple of green Martian females. And the sight which met my eyes was that of a slender, girlish figure, similar in every detail to the earthly women of my past life. She did not see me at first, but just as she was disappearing through the portal of the building, which was to be her prison, she turned, and her eyes met mine. Her face was oval and beautiful in the extreme. Her every feature was finely chiseled and exquisite. Her eyes large and lustrous, and her head surmounted by a mass of coal-black waving hair, cut loosely into a strange yet becoming coiffure. Her skin was of a light reddish copper color, against which the crimson glow of her cheeks and the ruby of her beautifully molded lips shone with a strangely enhancing effect. She was as destitute of clothes as the green Martians who accompanied her. Indeed, save for her highly wrought ornaments, she was entirely naked, nor could any apparel have enhanced the beauty of her perfect and symmetrical figure. As her gaze rested on me, her eyes opened wide in astonishment, and she made a little sign with her free hand, a sign which I did not of course understand. Just a moment we gazed upon each other, and then the look of hope and renewed courage which had glorified her face as she discovered me faded into one of utter dejection, mingled with loathing and contempt. I realized I had not answered a signal, and, ignorant as I was of Martian customs, I intuitively felt that she had made an appeal for succor and protection which my unfortunate ignorance had prevented me from answering. And then she was dragged out of my sight into the depths of the deserted edifice. Chapter 9. I Learned the Language As I came back to myself, I glanced at Sola, who had witnessed this encounter, and I was surprised to note a strange expression upon a usually expressionless countenance. What her thoughts were I did not know, for as yet I had learned but little of the Martian tongue, enough only to suffice for my daily needs. As I reached the doorway of our building, a strange surprise awaited me. A warrior approached bearing the arms, ornaments, and full accoutrements of his kind. These he presented to me with a few unintelligible words, and a bearing at once respectful and menacing. Later Solo, with the aid of several of the other women, remodeled the trappings to fit my lesser proportions, and after they completed the work, I went about garbed in all the panoply of war. From then on, Sola instructed me in the mysteries of the various weapons, and with the Martian young, I spent several hours each day practicing upon the plaza. I was not yet proficient with all the weapons, but my great familiarity with similar earthly weapons made me an unusually apt pupil, and I progressed in a very satisfactory manner. The training of myself and the young Martians was conducted solely by the women, who not only attend to the education of the young in the arts of individual defense and offense, but are also the artisans who produce every manufactured article wrought by the green Martians. They make the powder, the cartridges, the firearms. In fact, everything of value is produced by the females. In time of actual warfare, they form a part of the reserves, and when the necessity arises, fight with even greater intelligence and ferocity than the men. The men are trained in the higher branches of the art of war, in strategy and the maneuvering of large body of troops. They make the laws as they are needed, a new law for each emergency. 
They are unfettered by precedent in the administration of justice. Customs have been handed down by ages of repetition, but the punishment for ignoring a custom is a matter of individual treatment by a jury of the culprit's peers, and I may say that justice seldom misses fire, but seems rather to rule an inverse ratio to the ascendancy of law. In one respect at least, the Martians are a happy people. They have no lawyers. I did not see the prisoner again for several days subsequent to our first encounter, and then only to catch a fleeting glimpse of her as she was being conducted to the great audience chamber where I had had my first meeting with Lorcas Tomau. I could not but note the unnecessary harshness and brutality with which the gods treated her, so different from the almost maternal kindness which Sola manifested toward me, and the respectful attitude of the few green Martians who took the trouble to notice me at all. I had observed on the two occasions when I had seen her that the prisoner exchanged words with the gods, and this convinced me that they spoke, or at least could make themselves understood, by a common language. With this added incentive, I nearly drove Sola distracted by my importunities to hasten on my education, and within a few more days I had mastered the Martian tongue sufficiently well to enable me to carry on a passable conversation and to fully understand practically all that I heard. At this time, our sleeping quarters were occupied by three or four females and a couple of the recently hatched young, besides Sola and her youthful ward, myself, and Wula the Hound. After they had retired for the night, it was customary for the adults to carry on a desultory conversation for a short time before lapsing into sleep, and now that I could understand their language, I was always a keen listener, although I never proffered any remarks myself. On the night following the prisoner's visit to the audience chamber, the conversation finally fell upon this subject, and I was all ears on the instant. I had feared to question Sola relative to the beautiful captive, as I could not but recall the strange expression I had noted upon her face after my first encounter with the prisoner. That it denoted jealousy I could not say, and yet judging all things by mundane standards as I still did, I felt it safer to affect indifference in the matter until I learned more surely Sola's attitude toward the object of my solicitude. Sarkoja, one of the older women who shared our domicile, had been present at the audience of one of the captive's guards, and it was toward her the question turned. When? asked one of the women. Will we enjoy the death throes of the Red One, or does Lorcas Tomel Jed intend holding her for ransom? They have decided to carry her back with us to Thark, and exhibit her last agonies at the great games before Tal Hadras, replied Sarkoja. What will be the manner of her going out? inquired Sola. She is very small and very beautiful. I had hoped that they would hold her for ransom. Sarkoja and the other women grunted angrily at this evidence of weakness on the part of Sola. It is said, Sola, that you were not born a million years ago, snapped Sarkoja when all the hollows of the land were filled with water, and the peoples were as soft as the stuff they sailed upon. In our day, we have progressed to a point where such sentiments mark weakness and atavism. It will not be well for you to permit Tars Tarkas to learn that you hold such degenerate sentiments, as I doubt that he would care to entrust such as you with the grave responsibilities of maternity. I see nothing wrong with my expressions of interest in this red woman, retorted Sola. She has never harmed us, nor would she, should we have fallen into her hands. It is only the men of her kind who war upon us, and I have ever thought that their attitude toward us is but the reflection of ours toward them. They live at peace with all their fellows, except when duty calls upon them to make war, while we are at peace with none, forever warring among our own kind, as well as upon the red men, and even in our own communities, the individuals fight amongst themselves. Oh, it is one continual awful period of bloodshed, from the time we break the shell, until we gladly embrace the bosom of the river of mystery, the dark and ancient Is, which carries us to an unknown, but at least no more frightful and terrible existence. Fortunate, indeed, is he who meets his end in an early death. 
Say what you please to Tars Tarkas. He can mete out no worse fate to me than the continuation of the horrible existence we are forced to lead in this life. This wild outbreak on the part of Sola so greatly surprised and shocked the other women, and after a few words of general reprimand, they all lapsed into silence and were soon asleep. One thing the episode accomplished was to assure me of Sola's friendliness towards the poor girl, and also to convince me that I had been extremely fortunate in falling into her hands rather than those of the other females. I knew that she was fond of me, and now that I discovered that she hated cruelty and barbarity, I was confident that I could depend upon her to aid me and the girl captive to escape, provided, of course, that such a thing was within the range of possibilities. I did not even know that there were any better conditions to escape, too, but I was more than willing to take my chances among people fashioned after my own mold, rather than to remain longer among the hideous and bloodthirsty green men of Mars. But where to go, and how, was as much a puzzle to me as the age-old search for the spring of eternal life has been to earthly men since the beginning of time. I decided that at the first opportunity, I would take Sola into my confidence, and openly ask her to aid me, and with this resolution strong upon me, I turned upon my silks and furs, and slept the dreamless and refreshing sleep of Mars. We've just gotten a hint of what is to come, introducing a new race of people on Mars. This is, this is the story gets good, believe me. Thanks so much for listening today, guys. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and I would love to hear from you if you do. If you don't, I'd love to hear why. So get in touch with me. All the links to do that are down below, as are all the links to buy the past books that we've done. You can go back and listen to the archives, the backlist episodes of the podcast, or you can go ahead and uh, just check out those uh, full audiobooks for you don't have to listen to me. Uh, intro and outro each episode you don't have to listen to any ads so that's a pretty good deal right there and it's a great way to support the podcast thanks for listening well i'll talk to you next time coming at you with another episode of uh princess of mars